One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Lauren Groff, author of the short story collection, Delicate Edible Birds, and the novels Monsters of Templeton, Arcadia, and Fates and Furies, which is one of the most talked about books of 2015. Fates and Furies was a finalist for the National Book Award and a Kirkus Prize. It was featured as a morning edition book club pick on NPR, is a New York Times bestseller, and was hailed by President Obama as his favorite novel of the year. Fates and Furies tells the story of a marriage offering two sides of the relationship. The first half, Fates, is told from Lotto's point of view, and the second half, Furies, is told from Matilde's point of view. Both partners have a plethora of secrets, yet a deep commitment to their marriage. We began the discussion talking about Groff's view of marriage, something she states publicly that she is ambivalent about. I'm not ambivalent about my own marriage, (laughs) which is actually, it's highly wonderful and beneficial to me and to my husband. I mean, it's a very safe spot and a very beautiful thing. I'm ambivalent about the um, the of marriage in general, primarily because of the history of it. And I've, you know, I'm someone who's done a lot of reading and I've read a lot of history and I took a lot of feminist philosophy classes in college. And so basically it's a misogynistic traditional structure and I'm very much a feminist and 
many, many ways. And I think a lot of the things that we don't pay attention to are vestiges of this misogynistic paternalistic structure. So that's what I um, am ambivalent about. And, and I don't love the way that we sort of fall into these you know, archetypes of um, male and female behavior within marriages. Uh, that really, really bothers me a lot. So that's, you know, my ambivalence is, is more as a cultural observer um, than um, as someone who is in a marriage herself is very, very happy. So, so you know, I believe it can make individuals much stronger, obviously. I just resist the history of it and the basic philosophy behind it. <laughs> So with Fates and Furies, I'm curious, partly how you built your characters. I was very struck by their names, Lancelot and Matilde, and Lancelot is called Lotto. They're very unique names. And I'm wondering if you could talk about how you came up with those names and is the process of naming them inseparable from building them? My process is very, very strange, and I know that we're going to talk about it much more, but I do a lot of writing and then throwing out and then rewriting and throwing out. And my first, you know, long time that I started working on this book, it was just on the walls, you know, on these huge sheets of paper with Lotto on one side of the room and Matilda on the other. Um, and I go back and forth and bounce back and forth and tell stories, you know, the same scene from two separate points of view, and that's how I sort of tunneled into their psyche. Um, but, um, I wanted in the first part of the book, which is the fate part of the book, a lot of part, I wanted to build a narrative out of previous narrative structures, right? So I wanted to, to think very much about traditional narrative structures, like marriage, right? Um, I, I wanted to think about the consortium and I wanted to think about courtly romance of that, you know, the medieval romances, um, and that's where Lotto and Gawain and um, another character's name come from. Um, and I wanted to think about, you know, Greek drama and uh, opera. And so I, I was playing very much with the first part of the book with um, just narratives that had been seen before. And in the second part of the book, I tried and I wanted very much to move away from that idea. I wanted to actually puncture it in Matilde's part of the book, the furious part of the book. So um, the names correspond to uh, these ideas um, of either part of the book as, you know, being built out of traditional narrative structure and then not at all. When you write these on the butcher blocks, are you writing whole scenes or are you just writing kind of notes? Uh, both, and I'm drawing, and I'm pinning up, you know, people's faces, and then, you know, I'm basically just figuring things out on the page. But I, you know, I sometimes do very long scenes, but that's the first time I've ever done this sort of thing. Um, for, for this book, I, I feel like I had to make the first draft like that. Um, and then, you know, other drafts were much more standard, longhand, on blank paper, you know, now telling the story trying to tell the story in a straightforward way. And so you, you were mentioning you write by longhand, and then you, you're you known for writing by longhand, tossing it out, writing again, and then maybe finally making your way to the computer. And for a lot of people, that's uh, unfathomable to, to spend your time writing a whole narrative and then 
chucking it. What 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 does it leave for you to go on with when you do throw it away? You know, I I know that it is unfathomable to a lot of people to do this, but um, in truth, it saves me a great deal of time. And I know it seems like a, a lot of waste, and you know, um, it's it's not. So what happens is I would spend all my time just playing around with sentences because I I love sentences. I mean, they they they're why I went into this business to begin with, right? I mean, I just I love reveling in them. I think it's really fun. Um, but what if I if I spend all my time playing with my sentences? I won't do the necessary character work. I won't do the necessary, you know, structural, architectural work. I won't make the right decision from from the beginning. Um, so what happens is, you know, say I do a fast first draft. And, you know, sometimes the fast first draft is um, a mass of index cards, right, that I won't look at again. I'll just throw out. Or sometimes the, the fast first draft is like what I did with the butcher paper on the walls. Um, and then I you wad it up and put it in the trash. <laughs> um, and sometimes it's just legal pads, right? Um, but I get through it, I throw it out, and what remains in my mind um, are the living details. You know, the scenes that actually had some vitality and life in them. The the characters that actually meant something, and they're not always the the major characters in the finished book. You know, at that very preliminary stage, but they're the ones that I want to pay attention to at the moment. And so um, if you do this sort of technique, you know, um, one, you're always, you know, you're never stalled out, right? Because you're working with a great deal of momentum. And momentum's really important for me and sort of the rhythm of the storytelling and the rhythm of the narrative telling. Um, but two, you end up building a depth to the story um, because a lot of the things that you have written are still in your brain, but they don't end up in the final book. So, for instance, I have a whole probably other book, a fat book, on Antoinette, who's Lotto's mom, um, but, it, you know, it'll never be written. It's just it has been written and then thrown out and now sort of lives in my brain. I like the idea of building this narrative almost like a three-dimensional printer, sort of print layer, a top layer, a top layer, and build a city that you can walk through and sort of figure out which door to go into, which window to crawl out of. Um, try to figure out your way through the story that way. I think it's, it's much more rich for me. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, We'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She was in pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Lauren Groff, author of Fates and Furies. There's something about your process that sort of mimics or reflects a theme in your book, I think, which is the question that I think one of the questions in Matilde's and Lotto's marriage is, does the past matter? Because they don't, Lotto especially doesn't know anything about Matilde's past. And it's sort of, I see like something similar with your, your drafts, because there is something from the past that makes it to the next level of your book. But as far as your characters, does the past matter in, in a relationship? Right. That's a, that's sort of the question of the book, as you said. Um, I wonder, right? Because the past is a story that we tell from the present. I mean, it's always something that we're looking back at. It's always retrospective. So um, it's and narrative, as we all know, um, are things constructed, right? They're not inherently truthful in and of themselves. Um, so I, I think that a narrative can be told out of the same basic facts in any different way. And it all depends on who you are at the at the present moment, the person telling the story, um, if the past matters in a certain way or in another way. So um, what I'm trying to say is that anything can be looked at um, in a multiplicity of ways. And what matters is the pressure that it brings to bear on your present self and how it makes you act. Uh, so, yeah, it matters, but it's, a, it's all perception, I think. I, I thought with Matilde and Lotto, one thing that was interesting, especially what you were saying, and I don't know if you would agree with this or not, um, what you were saying about your, the institution of marriage was that I found in some ways that Matilde had more male qualities and Lotto had more female qualities, or at least they had enough of those that stood out, meaning Lotto had this sensitivity and Matilda had this coldness that traditionally are are accompanied with stereotypes of the opposite gender. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, yeah, but then again, I mean, Matilde has a lot of things that are sort of hyper-feminine. And, and in a certain way, I'm sort of critiquing some of the things that she does also. I mean, I'm critiquing his sort of oblivious um, privilege, uh, mostly in the book. I mean, he really is... He has no idea how much privilege he lives within. And he doesn't pay any attention to any of that, um, to his massive detriment. And he, but he is incredibly sensitive in, in the same way. Um, and the things that, you know, I resist in the film um, are also the things that I admire in her. And um, one of those things is just the ability to um, 
I guess to be passive aggressive, it's not a, it's not that men aren't passive aggressive, but I see it more frequently in my female friends. Sort of the ability to sort of not lash out in aggression, but hold things until it's um, it can be weaponized. Um, and so that's that's you know I both admire that in Matilda because I have almost none of it myself. I sort of react in a maybe a more aggressive slash male way. Um, but I also um, am so frustrated when I encounter it in my own life. Um, it's just something that I don't really like very much. So I put that in Matilda for a reason to sort of think about it more and why I resist it very, very much. So um, one of the things I've read that you wanted to do, and I, I'm sure that Shakespeare was one of the influences, is that you want to write in every single register. And I just was wondering if you can talk about this in as you wrote this, what that means for you, just digging a little deeper and how that manifests in a work of art. Yeah, well, in this book in particular, I wasn't going for the slightly more flat um, effect that I wanted for Arcadia. You know, so it's not it's not that Arcadia is flat insofar as the tone is is even, relatively even throughout. I mean, um, throughout each of the four sections, they, they have their own particular tone that you try to ring. Um, for this book, I did want more variety, and I wanted sort of the, the, the tragic or the self-asserted tragedy to, to rub up against the somewhat more comic elements. And I wanted a huge amount of sex which is not something you tend to see in a literary book um, because it's it's the opposite of refined, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, but, um, it's something that, uh, you know, you see in erotic books or, you know, books that are not taken all that seriously. So, I you know, I did, I wanted to, I wanted the scatological and I wanted the sort of more elevated um, at the same time because, um this book is about a marriage, right? And and the expected thing when you write a book about marriage would be to keep it firmly in the straightforward realism domestic realm. Um, and I didn't want to do that at all. I wanted to sort of play around with a lot of ideas, and I wanted to play around with a lot of um, structures and and um, and theories about marriage. And uh, I wanted it to be playful in the way that, you know, a marriage is itself never just one thing, right? It's it's always multiple things happening at the same moment. And the person that, you know, you either love or hate, you know, within the union um, is uh, is never one thing. It's always, there are many, many things happening at the same time. So, so um, my goal with this book was just to go a little bit crazy and like make it as fun as possible for myself to write it and hopefully make it fun for the reader to read. Well, marriage is like a, a mini opera in itself. Oh, yeah. Big time. And that's the thing about operas. That's why I love them so much. And I really, really, really do. I mean, um, they started out as, you know, an incredibly popular art form, right? And only through time they started becoming uh, seen as highly refined. But if you see the opera Buffo, I mean, it's just, it's funny and the songs, you know, you can sing them on the street and, you know, it's, it was it was of the people at, of, at a very early stage. And now, 
you know, it has shifted almost dramatically in the opposite direction and only a million years can buy tickets. But it's, um, it's, you know, it's one of those crazy, amazing things, uh, some of the original and earlier operas, um, where everything exists the same. And it's like, there are fart jokes, you know? <laughs> and then there are people singing these insane arias um, that only the most well-trained musicians on the face of the planet can sing. So everything is mixed in at once. And you're right, marriage is, is operatic in a very quiet, you know, internal way a lot of times. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Lauren Groff, author of Fates and Furies. I was interested in a moment in your book that I thought was really interesting, if it was a statement on on marriage or these people's marriage, when our our memories may be intertwined. And I don't know if we can if if this was a genuine moment for Lotto or if he was conscious of what he was doing, but he basically took one of Matilda's childhood stories and memories and claimed it as his own. And I don't know if this was like supposed to be a statement about they're intertwined, like that their brains just merged or that he was using something for his own benefit. But can you talk about why you chose to to use this, what this idea was of, of, of co-opting his partner's memory? Yeah. You know, I've seen this happen between my husband and me, and not to bring it all back to the personal, but that's really where it came from. And um, for... So it, it comes from a different space for my husband than it does for me. For my husband, because he's not a creative person, um, when he steals my stories, he does so because he forgets that um, they are not his stories. Um, but when I steal his stories, um, I do so in order to use them in a creative way, which is probably deeply unfair. Um so I, the, I guess the the initial impulse behind the stealing is very, very different. For Lotto in that scene, he's stealing it because uh, he he is a storyteller and he doesn't know any better, or he can't sort of see the boundaries between his and hers, and it doesn't matter to him that it was her story that he took because he believes that she's basically a part of him. Um, and Mathilde feels that her autonomy is threatened by his stealing this one very slight, like not even meaningful story from her life. Uh, but, but she gets upset about that. Um, and it's just interesting to me because I think it's happening more and more often in my own experience. And I am curious, you know, I've only, I've been with my husband since 1999. So that's about, um, 16 years. And, uh, you know, if we are lucky enough to get to be together for 50 years, I mean, will we have any autonomous stories or will I think all of his stories are mine and vice versa? I'm really I'm fascinated by that. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. 
I think concepts like these are so fascinating. I'm really interested in epigenetics, which is sort of that field of genetics where your genes can change by external or environmental factors. You read about Holocaust victims whose the trauma they've gone through have actually changed their DNA that's maybe even um, inherited by their children. I'm so fascinated by that. And I wonder oh my God, me too. if yeah. there's something like that that happens in a marriage where it's like this neuron level merging because you're together so much that you genuinely can't remember what happened to you and what happened to the other person. Wouldn't that be incredible to do a study on it? Because there would be real survival um, benefit to that happening, right? I mean, you know, just even back these pre-written words to come back and say, you know, I saw a saber-toothed tiger over, you know, beyond the river. And for that to become part of the, the almost psychic DNA of your partner or your, your group or your family, that would be, I mean, a survival benefit, right? I mean, it would be incredibly useful. So, yeah, I wonder, I wonder if that could actually happen. And I wonder how one would actually track it, you know, just on a neurobiological level. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Lauren Groff, author of Fates and Furies. Tell me a little bit about the title. Did you know from the very beginning this was the title? No, not at all. So what had happened was I um, I knew that I wanted to write a book about marriage, and that's all I knew. And then I... I I can only write about four to five hours a day, and I get up at 5.30 in the morning, so I've got a whole swath of time left over. And, um, you know, and so I try to fill it with reading or with taking these online courses called MOOCs, which I love. I think they're amazing and wonderful because the best professors on the planet teach them, and they're free. Um, And... Uh, you, I, you know, you get to read, say, the Iliad uh, with guidance by a genius, basically. So um, I um, I took a lot of these courses. One of them was Shakespeare. One of them was um, the tragic hero in Greek mythology, for instance. And I, I was just, like, filled with glee because I thought that these things that I was just interested in, I didn't, you know, think that they had any bearing on the project at hand, ended up having a huge amount of um, interest in the project at hand. I mean, they, I mean, so the Faith in the Furies came in because uh, I started seeing all these resonances with Greek mythology, and then um, uh, I started, I don't know at what point, at what draft, you know, probably it was somewhere around the 10th draft, I understood that, um, that they're, the Faith, and the Furies are almost balancing triads of sisters, uh, each of whom has a unique philosophical difference from the other. The, the fates, you know, create the stuff of destiny, they measure it out and then they cut it, right? So everyone is susceptible to the fates. Everyone, even the gods, um, are, you know, under their sway. And the Furies are these ancient Chthonic goddesses who come up and, you know, chase down malefactors, and they're eventually subject to the rule of man, but generally, you know, they, they chase down people who who um, don't 
correspond to the, the rules of the gods. And so um, I was just really fascinated by this because it seems almost as if there are two distant philosophical mindsets going on within these sets of sisters. Um, and then I saw them as almost motifs for each part of the book. Well, in fact, in the beginning, I thought I was writing two books, but it ended up being one book. That's so interesting that you take these classes. I mean, what do you think the role is of continuing education in the life of a writer? I mean, you you have a lot of references to other literary traditions. And of course, you learned probably a lot in college and, and in grad school. But um, how important do you think it is for you to keep learning either within your field or without? I think it's massively important, if not integral, to the act of writing. Um, or to the act of writing something interesting, right? Um, and I may be saying this because, you know, I'm still, I'm 37, which is not young, but it's not old. Um, and I'm relatively new in my career, but uh, I don't ever want to write the same book again. You know, I, I, I would hate that. And I also firmly believe that the material um, and the sort of the shape of what you're writing about have to go hand in hand. Um, And so necessarily the stories that you tell have to change from, from book to book because, you know, the material has to be different. So, um, so I, I feel like I get so much out of reading books that I didn't think that I would like or, um, you know, nonfiction work that someone just hands me one day and I end up reading and it changes my whole idea of what it is that I'm doing. Um, And I think a lot of fiction writers in particular get sucked into this concept where they they only read other fiction, Um, which is great, but it becomes this hermetically sealed world where it's almost an echo chamber where you hear your own craft issues singing back at you instead of um, you're not, your brain isn't being fertilized by ideas really alien to your, your impulses, your original mindset and your original impulses. And I think that being open to strangeness um, helps the fiction in every level. And, you know, you can get some of that strangeness out of, watching, you know, the entire Criterion Collection, you know, on Hulu. But you can also get it out of reading all the poetry you can get your hands on or taking these MOOC classes and and retaining a sense of intellectual curiosity so that you never stop asking questions. I think think fiction gets really, really boring when you stop asking questions. Well, that said, can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yes. So the the writer that I go back to time and time and time again is George Eliot, and the book that I read every year is Middlemarch. And so this passage is from Middlemarch, and I printed it out and I put it on my wall. So it goes, That element of tragedy which lies in the very fact of frequency has not yet wrought itself into the coarse emotion of mankind, and perhaps our frames could hardly bear much of it. If we had a keen vision and feeling of all ordinary human life, it would be like hearing the grass grow and the squirrel's heart beat, and we should die of that roar which lies on the other side of silence. 
As it is, the thickest of us walk about well-wadded with stupidity. And so why this passage? What does it do for you? The thing about George Eliot that I love the most is that she never flinched from ideas. Um, and she, 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 her impulse was always to look harder. Um, and this is one of those moments where it just gives me solace um, because she says you can never look hard enough. You know, we're not, we're sensitive to but if we were as fully sensitive as we should be, we would die of it. Um, so, so it's our job as creative people to look as hard as we possibly can, to feel as much as we possibly can, because no matter what, it won't be enough. Um, and so it's, it's almost a goad, you know, she, she acts on me almost as a goad to work harder and try harder and think harder. How about something you wrote? Can you read a passage that either changed a lot from the first draft, which you might not even remember, or um, that you really struggled with or something that succeeded? So I, I'm just going to read the last paragraph of Faith and Fury uh, because I probably went through 60 last paragraphs of this book. Um, so I'm just going to read it. She wished she'd been the kind Matilda, the good one, his idea of her. She would have looked smiling down at him. She would have heard beyond Mary me to a world that spun behind the words. There would have been no pause, no hesitation. She would have laughed, touched his face for the first time, felt his warmth in the palm of her hand. Yes, she would have said, sure. And the reason why I, I wanted to read that is actually because it was so hard to get to that point. Um, and it wasn't just that, you know, I'd written draft after draft after draft of the whole book, but I had to rethink the ending over and over and over again. And I think for most writers, the ending is always the hardest thing to do. Um, because what you want to do in an ending is you you want um, you want to treat it like it's a room that the reader has been in the entire time, but suddenly you're opening this window that the reader didn't even know was there in the room. Um, and But finding that window in the wall is really, really, really hard to do for a writer. Uh, and sometimes it just takes sheer hard work. Um, and, I mean, I think that that's, you could actually say that about most problems in fiction, is that, you know, if you have the original spark, it just takes sheer hard work sometimes to get to where you want to go. Where do you write? It depends on the book. So a lot of space and series was done both in my crappy video in my garage, but also in my bed um, where I sleep. For some reason, that's the, like, the safest place to write it. Um, Arcadia was written entirely in the studio. Uh, there, are, there have been short stories that I've written entirely in coffee shops. You know, it all depends on what kind of energy I'm, I'm looking for for the book or for the story. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Oh, God, I go for long runs and swims. Um, and I I watch a lot of movies and I do a lot of other work that I think is not at all for the book, but it ends up being always for the book. Um, and that's what I, yeah, yeah. I think actually physical exercise is my number one way of getting away from everything. But the thing that's funny is that the more of it you do, um, 
the more suggestive self to you for the work at hand. So, you know, if I'd add three more extra miles, suddenly on the third mile, I would get a good idea for something. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I don't show it to anyone until I feel like it's done. And then I show it to my husband first. Um, and and he's great because he's not a literary person, but he's really super smart. Um, and so, he, you know, I think a lot of times literary people sometimes get seduced by techniques that we've seen before that we think are really cool and they may not work. Um and then I show it to my agent, and then I have a group of great friends from NSA and from the world at large. And how have you dealt with rejection? Oh, you deal with rejection every single day. I mean, most of the rejection you deal with is your own. And um, the best way i found to deal with it is really, frankly, just compartmentalizing, saying that, you know, Lauren, it's fine. Let it ruin your breakfast. <laughs> but by lunchtime... You, you have to forget it. And by then, you know, you just put it in the box, put the box in the vast hall closet of rejection, and then shut the door. And what is your favorite word? Oh, it all depends on the day. I wish, you know, I love every word. But um, this morning, my oldest son um, was trying to figure out how to spell because he's seven. He, he has spelling issues. Uh, and, I, and he sort of staring at the word because, and it's very beautiful. It's a very, very beautiful word. So I'd say today it's because, and tomorrow it'll be like Coquelico or something. Um, and the next day, who knows? You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Lauren Groff, author of Fates and Furies. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.